Hello and welcome to the Europeans. Oh, Dominic, what's with all the gloom? People are actually supposed to enjoy listening to this podcast. Well, it's been quite a week. I've been so depressed by what's happening in Britain. I know we're not meant to talk about it. but Literally breaking the first rule of this podcast in the first 20 seconds. Yeah, I'm sorry, but I was quite depressed by it. So I'm actually glad we're going to talk about other things. I need this podcast more than ever this week. Can I cheer you up with something? Go on. I had quite a French disaster this week. What happened? Well, I was in the office canteen and because I work for a French company, obviously we have a... You were drinking wine? Yeah, obviously. No, I don't. I've only done that once, actually. When I first arrived, I thought everyone was going to be drinking wine at lunch all the time. Not so. Very rare. Um, no, I wasn't drinking wine, but I was uh, thinking I bought this nice little piece of plum tart and I thought I'll have a bit of squirty cream on it. And because obviously it's a French company, we have a squirty cream dispenser. So I was just putting a bit of cream on my plum tart and the power button got stuck and it wouldn't stop and there was squirty cream going everywhere not only all over my plate in this kind of massive cream mountain but like all over the counter into the mayonnaise when I was just hammering at the power button shouting stop and uh, eventually it did but not before there was cream everywhere. I'm sorry I was complaining about the gloomy state of British politics when you've had like seriously bad things happen to you this week Katie. Puts things in perspective doesn't it? When you say squirty cream dispenser is it just like one of those handheld ones or have you actually got like a built-in machine? It's a full machine. That's crazy I want to see a photo of it on our Instagram account please. Somebody did actually take a picture of me and I don't really want to share it because it's deeply unflattering. So you're depressed about what's been happening? Yes, I am. But we've got a nice episode ahead. We're going to be um, pretending nothing's happening in the UK. Good idea. And uh, talking about the Irish language this week, I'm sure some of our listeners have a huge in-depth knowledge of the Irish language. Actually, in Ireland, the number of people who speak Irish daily is really pretty small and statistics suggest it is actually shrinking. The census in 2016 suggested that only 73,803 people in Ireland speak Irish daily outside of schools. Very specific. It is very specific, isn't it? Um, But our guest this week, Dara O'Shea, has been fighting back against this slide in interest in the Irish language. The language that is full of beautiful but uh, confusing silent letters. We'll be getting to that later in the show, but I've got a commemoration corner, Katie. This week we got a review on iTunes that was mainly nice. It gave us a healthy four stars. Could have been better. No, it's all right. But one of the reasons why we missed a star was a complaint that I apparently used too many obscure classical music references. <laughs> um, is that a thing? I'm really glad it's somebody else who uh, made that complaint and not me. <laughs> Thank you, reviewer, for saying what we were all thinking all this time. Um, no, do you know what? I really like your obscure classical music references because it makes me feel cleverer by association with you. Good, I think. Anyway, this week I'm using Commemoration Corner to prove that I can talk about other types of music as it just so happened to be the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road, the album from a musical ensemble called The Beatles. Oh, yeah. It was a huge hit, topping the charts in the UK for 17 weeks and in the US for 11 weeks, and it sold 4 million copies in just six weeks. 
Beatles fans still flock to the zebra crossing that adorns the front of the album, complete with a barefooted Paul McCartney. And there was even more madness than usual at the Abbey Road Zebra Crossing this week with fans gathering. Ringo and Paul were there to celebrate and apparently they listened to the album during a party with a special surround sound system of 21 speakers set up. So happy birthday, Abbey Road. You may not have been a critical success when you first came out, but I think you've proved those critics wrong. I've been listening to a bit of Beatles recently. It's just, I find it quite cheery in these dark times. Just pleasant sounding pop music. I think we all need more of that. Abbey Road was the album, the Beatles album that we listened to a lot in my childhood. I have oh. very fond feelings towards it. And I can't believe it was 50 years ago. Not that I was around. <laughs> we could have fooled me with all your archaic references. Thanks. Before Good Week, Bad Week, can I just make a quick apology? Go on. I would like to apologise to Greta Thunberg. Oh, I'm sorry I wrote all of those climate denying tweets. No, I'm not. I'm nothing like that. Um, I made a bit of a boo boo in last week's episode, which was brought to my attention by listener Anchor in Stockholm. um, That I very stupidly said that the global climate strike movement that started with Greta's protests uh, was outside her school. And they were, of course, outside the Swedish parliament. Stupid Katie. Uh, But thank you very much to Sharp-Eared Anchor. I kind of want to just talk about Greta again all week. I thought her speech this week at the UN was incredible. What a speech! And whoever is running her social media accounts is a genius as well. The fact that they took Trump's sarcastic tweet about her saying, oh, that looks like a happy young girl with optimism about the world. And then like within an hour, she changed her Twitter bio to a happy young girl with optimism about the world. Yeah, I love that. So yeah, well done, Greta. And well done, team Greta. You're doing a great job. Although I really hope people are looking after her and making sure she's okay. We should give uh, Greta's speechwriter good week this week, but we're not going to do that. We're going to give it to someone else. Who? I'm going to give good week to evil internet giants. Yay! Am I going to get sued for calling them evil? <laughs> Let's find out. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to give good week to the internet giants because of a quite big court ruling in Europe's highest court, the European Court of Justice, over the right to be forgotten. Can you tell us what that is? Um, that's when you can request to have like having something delisted on an internet search result about yourself yeah that's very accurate um so it's a right that we've had in europe since 2014 and if for example you were to google dominic kramer and it turns out that on page one of the search results there's like some really awkward information about your past uh you can get that link removed from the search results which is quite handy this is this is actually a serious question when you google my name i'm gonna do it right now and you go to the images some of the first images are of me as a teenager and I would really like to get them removed. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god, this one you're tiny. I know. Um can I get rid of them? That's a really good question. Do you have to have like legitimate reason as to why? I mean, I could say that it's affecting my professional standing. We're going to talk about this in a minute because it is very up in the air and that is part of the problem with it, but Sorry, I'm just going to take a second to look at these photos of you. You were adorable. I was a massive dork. But yeah, just to explain this court ruling, until now, it hasn't been clear whether search engines have to deal with requests like this to take stuff down from all over the world or just here in Europe. Until now, because this week there was this really big court ruling and it was really quite a big victory for Google because the court said, nah, this is a European law. It only applies here. 
which Google is absolutely delighted about because they've had to set up a whole team of people to deal with all of these requests from Europeans to take their information out of search results. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo, Google. <laughs> Gotta feel sorry for them. It's very hard being Google sometimes. If they don't have enough money to pay a whole team of people to do this. Oh, it's nice, I think, to create jobs. They would have created many more. Maybe this is bad week. Anyway, it's definitely a good week for Google because the idea of having to do this for like the whole world was uh, not something that they were very enthusiastic about. So European listeners can feel like definitely a bit smug about having probably the most protective online privacy laws in the world. But it is still kind of controversial, this right to be forgotten. And I think it's still fair to say that it is still evolving as a legal concept. Like we don't really know what the limits of it are. Um, there was this really interesting case in Italy last year of this local journalist who wrote about two brothers getting into a fight one of the brothers ended up stabbing the other with a fish knife. Perfectly normal local news story. The article sat online for like 10 years. And then one of the brothers demanded that the journalist's website delete the article. He said, like, look, the fact that I stabbed my brother comes up in search results for my name. I'm not someone famous. I'm just a normal guy. And it was years ago. Like, I should be able to move on from this. And the journalist, a guy called Alessandro Biancardi, he said, no, like this is a matter of public record. And I didn't write anything that isn't true. And he ended up getting sued and losing his job. So I don't know. What do you think about that case? Yeah, it's tricky because I think people should be able to get a second chance. Yeah. Even if they've stabbed their brother, I don't know. For me as a journalist, it feels kind of instinctively wrong. Like freedom of speech means that we shouldn't censor information that is true. But like on the other hand, I can see that the internet has really changed the way that we deal with like little cases like that involving normal, non-famous people. Like previously, if you got into a fight in the street and you ended up in court, it might have gone in the local paper. But the next day it would get you to wrap up fish and chips, you know, and people would just forget about it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's still quite controversial. And it's also quite a weird legal concept because Google has been left in charge of deciding like what is fair and what is reasonable or not. And that shouldn't really be their job. So in the case of you and your dorky pictures from when you were a teenager, someone in Google is going to be like, is this damaging Dominic Kramer's reputation? Yes, because when people are deciding whether to cast me in an opera and Google me, they'll see, oh, he's actually a child. An adorkable child. We're looking for an adult. Maybe we should make a podcast about you following your uh, right to be forgotten case. That'd be quite fun. Oh, this reminds me of a Reply All episode. Do you remember? It's an episode called Permanent Record that's about people who have things on the internet that they just can't get rid of. There's a guy whose face somehow ended up on the front of a newspaper next to an article about a man being convicted for child porn. Mm. They were completely disconnected stories, but somehow they got like equated as one story. Oh no. It's a really good episode. I recommend it. Number 143, Permanent Record, Reply All, Katie and my favourite podcast, almost. Apart from this one, yeah. Apart from this one. Who has had a bad week, Dominic? This week, I'm giving bad week to Volodymyr Zelensky, the newish president of Ukraine, who has found himself in the middle of the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. Quick recap to remind you, Zelensky became president of Ukraine in May after a really strange meteoric rise from TV star to president. Playing a president, right? 
yeah, so he played a teacher who accidentally became president after like a clip went viral. Yeah, it's even stranger than Trump's meteoric rise because, yeah, he was playing a president in the TV show, Life Imitating Art, 2019 style. Anyway, this week would have been Zelensky's big debut on the international stage with a speech at the UN General Assembly in which he was hoping to remind everyone of the Russian conflict in Ukraine. But it was rather overshadowed by the investigation into what was said in a phone call between Zelensky and Trump back in July. A phone call that was at the centre of a whistleblower complaint from someone within the intelligence services. I won't go into the procedure of what's happening in the States right now with the impeachment inquiry because it's all moving so fast that whatever I say will be out of date by the time you hear this. And you've all probably seen the various breaking news alerts of this quickly developing story and Trump's textbook cries of witch hunt in response. But a rough transcript of the call was released last week and I imagine it caused Zelensky quite some embarrassment. It showed him being pretty receptive to Trump's, let's say, sketchy request. Um, I think sketchy isn't the legal term, but hey, I'm going with it. Oh, we're going to get sued multiple times this podcast. Brilliant. (laughs) It's not only this that is embarrassing for Zelensky, but also just the general sycophancy that he expresses towards Trump is pretty nauseating. Among other things, he mentions that he stayed in Trump's hotel in New York. It's pretty depressing that a world leader thinks that that's a necessary thing to mention. Um, He describes Trump as a, quote, great teacher for his own campaign. And he even self-deprecatingly compliments Trump for Air Force One in comparison with the measly plane that he gets to use in Ukraine. You could argue that this is all just clever diplomacy and it's the best way to manage a leader with some narcissistic tendencies. Mm. Call those lawyers again, Katie. But seeing this such blatant flattery in text is pretty gross. The call also contains a discussion about the European Union with Zelensky agreeing with Trump 1000% that the European Union doesn't do enough for Ukraine and that the US is a much better friend. Understandably, the EU weren't too pleased to hear this and publicly argued back defending their relationship with the Ukraine, a country with whom the EU has loaned and granted billions of euros. So Zelensky is in a bit of a tricky position with the EU. And if Joe Biden were to become president, who knows, then Zelensky would be in a pretty tricky situation with the US, as Biden is almost certainly not too pleased with how receptive Zelensky was to Trump's request to investigate. that would be super awkward wouldn't it it would be quite orcs but how has this all gone down on his home turf well according to a nice bit of reporting from christopher miller on radio free europe most of the people who spoke to the reporter seemed more concerned with their day-to-day worries than the fact that their president is caught up in a scandal they mainly probably correctly concluded that president Zelensky is a mere bit player in this saga and it's actually about donald trump isn't it always yeah Also, interestingly, the story hasn't been covered that widely in Ukraine. And Mm. that's perhaps indicative of the fact that people in Ukraine have much more serious problems than Donald Trump. Yeah. That said, Zelensky has definitely got himself into a bit of a pickle. And he looked incredibly uncomfortable sitting next to Trump in front of the press a few days ago. You could see him almost squirming as Trump tried to use him as his defense. So with that, bad week, Zelensky. Good luck with this one. Dial up the Skype machine, Katie. Who are we speaking to? 
It is Dara O'Shea. Uh, Dara is a really wonderful Irish writer who runs a Twitter account called at the Irish Four. And the Twitter account translates Irish words, often ones that are relevant to the news cycle. Uh, just looking at a couple this week, written constitution, very relevant to our own country right now. Um, and sometimes it translates more playful things like carrot cake, for example. Derek launched his Twitter account a few years ago. It just took off. It's now got tens of thousands of followers. And it comes at a really interesting time because the Irish government is trying very hard to make Ireland a fully bilingual country. Fewer and fewer people speak Irish on a daily basis, only about 4% of the population. But the government is fighting back with this big like 20-year strategy, trying to teach it better in schools, putting money into Irish language media, that kind of thing. But very far away from the government, on the ground, are normal people like Derek, who are just celebrating the language and making it really playful and fun. So his Twitter account spawned a really delightful book called, I don't want to say it, do you want to say it? No, go on. Mother Folklore. Folklorist Dictionary. But obviously, Mother Folklore sounds a little interesting to uh, the English-speaking ear. Uh, it's called Mother Folklore Dispatches from a Not-So-Dead Language. And he's also launched a podcast of the same name, uh, which you should definitely listen to because it's really lovely. And it has a jingle that's like similarly horrible to our jingle. Rude. Oh, I think that's fair, isn't it? What, saying our jingle's horrible? Oh, our jingle, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We're all in the same horrible jingle boat. But uh, this week, we were delighted to have Dara cross the Celtic Sea telephonically. We gave him a ring in Dublin. This all started with a Twitter account, and it now has forty more than 40,000 followers. Can you tell us the story of why you set it up in the first place? Yeah, so I've been reconsidering, I suppose, my relationship with the Irish language. My father was fluent in Irish, among other languages. And when I was getting married, I, was, I wanted to have a reading in Irish at the wedding. I didn't know why it was important to me. And my dad was too sick to actually do a speech himself. And I realised that... I realized I wouldn't have much more time with him and I wanted to find out why Irish mattered so much to him in the time we had. I started studying myself, getting back into Irish, and what I discovered as an adult compared to when I was studying in school was it was an extraordinary language full of these beautiful words that they were almost like one-word poems. And I started sharing what I, what I was finding on Twitter and I got a huge response very quickly. Obviously, there's a lot of people who felt the same way. They actually were very interested in Irish when it was presented in a different way than it was presented in school. Yeah, because I get the impression when I talk to Irish friends about what it was like learning Irish at school, it doesn't seem to generate particularly fond memories among lots of people. What did you find learning Irish like at school? Was it quite tedious or did you like it? In primary school, I, I liked it to a point. Like a lot of people, I found that the switch over from primary to secondary school was a, a change in expectations. While you weren't able to quit it completely, the option to just focus on other subjects was very tempting, very easy. And the idea was that it was, it was so much easier to get an A or a B in another subject. And that's kind of what I did. One of the rules you set yourself when starting this Twitter account was not to get involved in discussions about state policy on Irish language. Uh, how difficult has that been to stick to? Very hard, mainly because it's something that keeps turning up in conversations. It's something that almost always comes up in the comments under my articles. I've tried fairly hard not to kind of get into it directly, but sometimes the temptation is, is fairly strong. I've been very bold in breaking that rule. In terms of how it gets taught, obviously I know it's something that you don't like getting into that much, but do you think more people would like learning it at school if the way that it was taught was more fun or more interesting in the way that your, your delightful book is and your lovely podcast are? 
I'd like to think so. I'd like I'd be reluctant to kind of tell teachers how to do their job, but I do think that there probably are other approaches that can be taken. Making Irish one subject for me, I think, is the problem because some people really want to speak Irish, or some people want to know how to engage with the state in Irish, and some people want to read poetry. And those are three different competencies. Trying to squidge them all together is um, doomed to fail in many ways. Do you think Irish is a more complicated language than uh, most? I don't think it's it's more complicated. It can feel more complicated sometimes because schools kind of try to kind of um, show the different dialects as well as kind of the official Irish. But Irish is much better in terms of spelling and grammatical rules. We've only got um, about 12 regular verbs. The actual spelling rules, it's much better at obeying its own rules than English, but it's never really explained that way. And I think, yeah, maybe if those grammar fundamentals were kind of explained in a straightforward way, you'd realise it objectively isn't more complicated than other languages. One thing I really like about your podcast and your book and the Twitter account is that they are all really enjoyable to people that don't even speak Irish. Is that something that was important to you or was it just a kind of happy accident? Well, I think for me, the big thing was that I was never really intending on speaking just to an audience in the Republic of Ireland. I wanted something that a person with an interest in language might be able to just dip into, as well as kind of a, for want of a better word, a gateway drug into Irish. Mm-hmm. There's a Twitter account called the German Four that just shared German words and you didn't need to speak German to follow it. And there was a there was an Instagram account called Every Single Word in Icelandic, which is just absolutely lovely. And I don't speak Icelandic, but I enjoy that account. And mm-hmm. I figured like that was a decent standard to set and if people wanted more, I could direct them to places where they get more in-depth, purely Irish language content by having those people on as guests. Can we talk about silent letters for a minute? You may. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what it's one of the big complications for non-Irish speakers is even with Irish names, knowing how to pronounce them. Could you give us like a basic idea of what like at least one of the rules are with the H's maybe? We would call those H's Shavus. And they usually represent that there's ownership of some description going on. So Kara is a friend and Mokhara is uh, when the C is softened to show that it's in the genitive case. And sometimes those H's, they do turn up as well in word endings. You might meet a girl called Brona. And in England, you might think that would be spelled B-R-O-N-A. And we'd have a G-H at the end of that. When you see the H next to the G, that's softening it or silencing it completely. Okay, so we don't need to be so intimidated by H's anymore. I wouldn't say so. <laughs> it's only a H. A lot of people in England drop H's. That's true. See, we're, we're not so different. <laughs> <laughs> I read that the numbers of people actually speaking the Irish language are going down. Uh, something like 74,000 at the last census in the Republic of Ireland, I think. But there is a kind of fight back going on. There are things like your podcast and there's like Irish language meetups and pubs and things. Is it kind of becoming cool to be into the language? I think so. I mean, I think that the perceptions of Irish have probably changed a lot in the last 20, 25 years. A lot of that is down to the Irish language television station, TG Cahar, and the perception also there that the Irish language is a gateway into a career in the media. Mm. It's meant that there's been a large overlap between kind of cool media student type people and Irish speakers, and that has been part of the change. Also, the Irish medium education has become very attractive and has been seen as an attractive alternative to private education for ambitious parents. It's a good quality state-funded education. And so in those schools, do you get taught all your classes in Irish? Yes. Uh-huh. You're doing physics, you're doing history. Okay. There were some concerns. People thought that this meant that when you go to university, that you might be on the back foot, but that hasn't 
proven to be the case. Uh, there's been no uh, evidence that those students have done worse at university. On the contrary. So you are watching the language evolve at the moment with new words being created to catch up with contemporary things. Have you noticed how these words develop? Like, is there a body that creates the new words or does it just happen naturally? Well, a bit of both in that there is a body that can monitor the Irish use and they, for example, if I was um, working in a, in a factory making nuts and bolts of different specifications and I wanted to translate a manual and I didn't know what the word for it, what type of screwdriver head was, I could apply to the committee and I'd say, is there a word for this already or is it okay to use this? And they would give a decision if the word hasn't been already used. Uh-huh. If somebody said, what's the Irish for selfie? And fain, thick, is basically a fain is self, thick is short for tour which is a picture like a self picture that was on the entry in the books for a while but then somebody said actually there's a pre-existing entry and we found someone on the internet or on the radio actually used feigning which is like a selfie maybe a year or so before that and then they would just update their records accordingly so they combine the academic process of finding the right word with also monitoring uh, word usage and finding earliest examples like that. So this sounds like a really nice process, much nicer than the French one. That yeah, we <laughs> I was going to say the French ones, they're so bossy. They're like, right, none of you are allowed to say, I don't know, fake news anymore. You've all got to say amphox or like, they come up with these weird words that nobody actually likes using i think because it's quite a top-down kind of mean approach it's a funny one because i, I think it's funny because obviously for france they're very particular about the cultural power of the french language and the cleanliness of it i suppose all languages borrow beg borrow and steal from other languages what's the irish word for podcast uh food crela or pod crela nice the pod isn't there and the crayla is just the word the old word for broadcasting oh, that's nice i think broadcasting was initially a type of fishing Oh, like casting in that? Whoa, <laughs> that's blown my mind. Um, if you look 50 years into the future and somehow we've survived the climate crisis, um, do you hope that people in Ireland will all be speaking Irish to each other? I don't know if we'll all be speaking Irish to each other, but I do, um, I'd like to think that maybe more Irish spoken. The way the world's going, maybe they, people will reconsider whether um, being in Eng- a country that only speaks English is, is as valuable as they thought it was. Could you give us maybe an example of one of your favourite words that just doesn't, it's just kind of untranslatable, it just doesn't have an English equivalent? Shadrain is a word for a raindrop that's going to travel along horizontally or diagonally. Mm. And for another one, I think there's a, a garach. Describe someone or something's garth means they're very fond of dogs. That's so nice. We're both, whatever that word is, I'm not going to attempt to say it. <laughs> you can and indeed must follow Derek on Twitter at the Irish Four and check out his book, especially if you've ever had an Irish friend with a name that you're scared of pronouncing. This is the one for you. Time for happy ending. My happy ending this week is actually happy for once. Yay. Makes a nice change. Yeah. And as I said, I think I really needed it this week. So a woman in her 90s was moving away from her house in a town just north of Paris. And she needed to clear out the contents of her house, either into a skip or for sale. And she asked someone to come over and do a valuation of some of the furniture. They worked out that they could sell about 100 of the items. The rest would just be thrown away. And for the 100 items, she'd raise around 6,000 euros. Not bad, but not worthy of a happy ending. That is until they noticed one item hanging above her hot plate. 
The expert from the auctioneers said she immediately thought it was special, but was surprised when she looked into it and realized it was a painting by the Florentine Renaissance painter Cimabue. The painting is titled Christ Mocked and is painted in the typical naturalistic style of the time against a gold background. It had gone unnoticed for years and, as I said, it had been sitting above the hot plate that she used for cooking. So it wasn't exactly the perfect spot for a Renaissance work of art to hang. Well, that like omelette grease. Yeah, apparently it's in like surprisingly good state. (laughs) It's thought to be part of a larger diptych that depicted the crucifixion of Christ. There are only 11 other known works on wood by Cimabue. Two others from the same diptych hang... I thought a diptych is two pictures. Yeah, so did I. So what? how can there be two other bits to it? Yeah, I really don't know. Maybe it's a, it's a diptych with three bits, which is a triptych. <laughs> but no, they think it's part of a large diptych. So maybe it was broken up into different pieces. We'll never know. Uh, anyway, one bit of the same diptych hangs in the National Gallery in London, another in the Frick Collection in New York. So it's pretty extraordinary to think that another picture from the same collection had just been sitting in this woman's house and that she doesn't even know how it came into the family. It's been there so long. They had just assumed it was a piece of Russian iconography. They were wrong. The painting will be sold at auction at the end of October and it's estimated to fetch between 300 and 400,000 euros. So this old lady can have a very nice retirement, it seems. She can. She's staying anonymous. This is part of a series, I think, Dominic, of your happy endings relating to like old people finding valuable things in their flats. It's true, yeah. Why, why do you get? Where do you get them from? You signed up to some like weird Google alert or something. If I was, I would be very happy because it would make my searching for happy endings a much easier job. It's your favourite type of news. If you too have found an expensive piece of art in your house and have a bit of spare cash, or even if you haven't found a piece of Renaissance art, we would really appreciate the support on Patreon. Many of you are now supporting us and it really helps us keep this podcast going and it helps us create some special episodes which we are making which are going to come out later in the year as well. So find us on patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. Our newest Patreon donor is Lana in Slovenia, a.k.a. my favourite country. Thank you, Lana. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Europeans pod, on Instagram, Europeans podcast, and on Facebook, just type in the Europeans podcast. See you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.